This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series, What Would Jesus Do?, And uh, for the last service, I only had sermon pages one, three, and five. So I made sure that I had all five for you guys. Problem is, I'm not sure how long that means it will be here. I'm kidding, kind of. God's faithful love executes grace and compassion for all the oppressed. In uh, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it would say it like this, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see, God's love towards his people and his faithfulness to his covenant lead to a compassion and grace that leads us in all to marvel at his character. The reason is, is because if you remember Exodus 32 leading into this chapter in 34 is the story of the golden calf, right? So what happens is essentially Moses is away with the Lord. Aaron is leading, or the lack of leading, is, uh, is working with the Israelites And they go into rebellion against God. They uh, create idols for themselves uh, to worship. And when Moses comes back, this is what happens. It says in chapter 32, As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hand, smashing them at the base of the mountain. You can feel the emotions there, right? It says he took the calf they had made, burned it up, ground it into powder, scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Now, I, you probably have before. You uh, had to maybe wash your mouth out with soap or eat a little bit of soap because of something you said. But I have never drank the water of a burnt golden calf. I can't imagine how mad he was. I don't know what exactly this experience looked like. But I know this, Aaron did not lead well. Listen to what he says in this, verse 21. Then Moses asked Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, Make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it in the fire, out came this calf. What a terrible leadership, right? In the midst of their grievous sin, he's leading uh, them towards worshiping what they are engaged in. Like, he says, you know what you, you, you yourself know that the people are intent on evil. So his leadership is, if you're intent on evil, just let them do it. Right? Like, they are, they're literally walking into rebellion against God. But Aaron and Moses aren't the only ones who wrestle with their own failures. We see this pattern throughout Scripture. We see it in Psalm 103, which we're about to look at. We see it in uh, Luke 150, where uh, it says, His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. 
Mercy exists because rebellion exists. God extends mercy because the people are in rebellion. So we're going to see God extend mercy to the Israelites. God extend mercy to David. God extend mercy in, uh, in Jesus' generation. And we can know the truth that if God will extend mercy to them, then he will extend mercy to us. And I hope that as you walk away today, you will proclaim the goodness of God because you know that despite your failures and despite your sin, God redeems those who are far from him. We see him redeem David from the pit. In verse 4, it says, He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. So if God is extending grace to undeserved sinners like you and me and David and Moses and his generation, he's redeeming unfaithful kings like David, then who's next? Come on, church, who's next? Like, think about that. Who is next to receive God's mercy and grace, who's never received it and doesn't understand that kind of compassion, who's relying on their own strength, their own works, who's uh, uh, just wavering and struggling in their own guilt and frustration. They've been riveted by the effects of recognizing sin in their life and it being exposed in their life, and they're struggling through it. Some people feel like David when he was sleeping with Bathsheba. Some people feel like Aaron after they built the golden calves. And somebody is ready like, think about it. Who is next? And I know that regardless of where you are, God died for you with your sin on his mind, not your perfection. God didn't die for you because you were so awesome. God died for you because he loves you and he is faithful to his covenant. So we're going to see God remain faithful to his covenant throughout Psalm 103. Look at it with me. It says, My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He's not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. And when the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him, and its righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength, who do his word obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. There's three times that the word Rahim is used in this passage. It's used in three different ways, though. You see it in Psalm 103, 13, in verse 4, and in verse 8. And each time we see it, it looks like the word compassion. 
But in Hebrew, the words are actually three different words. Very slightly different. But it's, it actually makes an impact when you can see uh, a little bit of the difference here. And you guys can do word studies to figure this out too. Uh, you don't just have to go into the Hebrew. You guys can do this as you're studying God's word. Just study it well. Understand what it is saying. It is a mine of golden truth. It is good for us. And as you see these truths come out and be revealed to us, they refresh our souls and draw us near to Christ. So we see these three different examples, and I think it makes an impact. Because you remember the passage in Romans, it says, For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ knew our sin when he was dying on the cross. Like, he died for, the sin, for our sins, but not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, as 1 John 2, 2 says. And so if Christ did this, and if he knew what was going on in your life, and yet he still died for you, it's an amazing amount of grace, mercy, and compassion. So look at what he says in this passage. In, in verse uh, 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 13, he uses this word as compassion of, of a feeling, like we feel compassion. We understand it. It's, it's been felt emotionally by us. In verse 8, it, it is the clear like, example of what mercy and compassion is. But there's a little bit different uh, in verse, it's a little bit different in verse 4. It says, He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with a faithful love and compassion. Faithful love and compassion being placed together uh, is used multiple times throughout Scripture. It's used in Jeremiah 16.5, Hosea 2.21, Zechariah 7.9, Psalm 51.3, which is the psalm where David is repenting to the Lord and asking for his forgiveness. We see it there, and we see it in Psalm 69.17. In every one of these examples, what it's doing is it's connecting compassion to God's covenant faithful love. The word is chesed. It's used multiple times in this uh, chapter in Psalm 103. Basically, what's here, here's what's happening. David is telling us that God's mercy, God's compassion, and God's grace is tied to his covenant faithful love. We see it throughout Scripture, but we specifically see it here. That means it's not tied to your faithfulness. It's tied to God's faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness. So all of a sudden we see this rachamim, which is a little bit altered version of that word that I was telling you about, compassion, which means something like God meets you where you are and extends compassion to you. That's how we could translate that word. Like Christ died for you for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. It's like that same exact thing happening. God meets you where you are and extends compassion to you. And it makes a difference when we read it that way because we know what David was doing. We know where David was. We know that David wasn't like on his throne with the crown on his head, ruling over Israel in a way that would lead everyone to God in this moment. This was after he oversaw the murder. This was after he slept with Bathsheba. This was David in his worst place in his life. That's where God met him with compassion. And that's why David at the end of this chapter would tell us, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless, us, bless the Lord three times. Because when Rahim and Chesed are put together, it means that we have compassion because of God's covenant faithful love, not because of anything that we can do or who we are. In fact, I think this is, y'all, this is so good to rest in. God's mercy can be attributed to his faithfulness and not our faithfulness. It's his covenant-bound mercy, not because of something we've done. 
And so this is actually where we praise God when we recognize that we've been chosen by God as his people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are a chosen people. And because he chose us, he's faithful to us. And it's only within that, being declared God's sons and daughters, that he's faithful to us. And it's good to know that because he's chosen us, he's not going to abandon us. He's going to extend to us grace and mercy despite our continual failures because he has chosen me, not me, having chose him. Therefore, he extends me grace and mercy. Not because of anything I can do, because of his love, his covenant, faithful love. And so we ask the question coming from this passage naturally, how vast is God's grace? Because I think it's what's, what it's answering. And here's how David would answer it. In verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. When it says heavens there, it's Shemaim. It means, uh, it means the sky and the stars that are within it. Sometimes it means the presence of God. Sometimes it means uh, the stars in the sky. In this instance, it's talking about the stars in the sky. David looks up and he goes, God's grace, compassion, and mercy is greater than that. If only David could understand in some capacity how far that actually was, maybe he would say something to that extent. Now science would tell us how many light years away it is or how many miles it is away from us. And we, it's unfathomable to think how great God and how vast God's grace is within that knowledge. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, verse 12 says. So we see the, the, the height of God's grace. We see the width of God's grace. And in verse 17 it says, but from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren. Look, David might not know how far it is from here to the moon or from here to a star. He might not know how far it is from the east to the west. He simply looks to his right and looks to his left and he sees how far it is. And he surely doesn't know how long eternity is. But it's not because he knows how far or how long or how high it is. It's because he knows how great God's grace is. And he uses his greatest ability to display how great God's grace is and compassion and mercy is. He puts it on display in the best way he knows possible. It's this high, this wide, and it's this far in time. It's what he can actually think about in his mind. Height, width, time. And he says it's greater than all of those. So how vast is God's grace? It's greater than anything we could ever imagine. How powerful is God's grace? Look at verses 3 through 5. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. He forgives you of all iniquity. That means anything you've ever done. For David, that is anything that he did in the past. God forgives him. He heals all your diseases. David knows what this is like because a week later he was healed of diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. David knows what this is like because the pit for them was like a grave, not hell. Uh, David had literally been saved from death, despair, depression. He was at his pit. He was in the bottom of his life. And God saved him and redeemed him out of that. And then he says he crowns you with faithful love and compassion. The king who had been crowned and put on his throne to oversee all of Israel tells us that there is a crown of compassion and faithful love that is greater than a crown on this earth. 
As we say, and I said it to the young adults last week, you can take a crown on earth and receive a cross for eternity, or you can take a cross on earth and receive a crown for eternity. David knows what it's like to have a crown on earth, and he'd rather have the crown from God. Verse 5 continues this. He says, he satisfies you with good things. In this life, we are longing for things. We're constantly thirsty, hungry. We need air. We want more. We want greater. That restaurant was good enough. That game wasn't fun enough. That movie's not good enough. Nothing is ever good enough. We're never satisfied, except when we see in the passage where it says, he satisfies. David had everything. As many women as he wanted, as much money as he wanted, as much power as he wanted. And yet he says, God satisfies. And finally he ends with, your youth is renewed like the eagle. My daughter asks me, I give her a question at night before I go downstairs. She always asks these huge, uh, just like crazy awesome questions. And she said, Daddy, how, how old will we be in heaven? And I've, you know, I've read books that talk about it. I've, I've looked at scripture that talks about it. And you wonder like, okay, well, what age will we actually be in all these things? And my thought is, okay, like I, I want the wisdom of a 70-year-old and the, and the, and the, uh, the physical uh, abilities of like an 18-year-old or something, right? It's unbelievable. Like I, I say sometimes like, oh, I, I recognize that I'm getting older. And people in the church make fun of me and laugh about it. I don't say I'm, I'm old. I say I'm getting older, okay? Just to clarify, But the key is here this. God's word says he renews us. Right? Like, look at at what happens here. Forgives, heals, redeems, crowns, satisfies, and renews. What is the power of God's grace? The power of God's grace is to overcome everything in our life that we can't. He does. There's so much power in this passage. I mean, look at verse 7 through 8. It it recalls God's righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, and it specifically looks at his ways and his deeds to the people of Israel. It looks at how he's engaged them. Now, why is this powerful? Because if the same God who has engaged Aaron and the wicked generation who worshiped the calf is the same God who's dealing with David who rebelled against God, then maybe that same God has appeared through Jesus and is going to deal with their generation. And maybe that same God is going to deal with us in our generation. The same God that sees rebellion and extends grace, mercy, and compassion is the God that comes in Jesus Christ and the God who's come to you. And I want to remind you that as we see these truths for Moses generation, for David's generation, for Jesus' generation, and now for our generation, the world is going to see the faithfulness of God to you and have confidence that God will extend faithfulness to them as well. That he will extend them grace, mercy, and compassion if he can extend you grace, mercy, and compassion. One of the ways I see this quite often in the church and in lives, is, and you can insert, just insert your name in here. Like, I've heard people say this all the time, and, and look, this is what we feel, right? Like, it's like, God, how, could, how can I tell people that I follow after Jesus with who I was? 
Like, I hope that we're all in some way at that point, like in the pit, like going, man, I know who I was. How could I ever tell people who I am now? They'll never believe me. They'll look at me as hypocritical. They'll look at me as like, well, you know, why are you falling after Jesus? We know what you used to do, right? Anybody feel that way? I think what happens sometimes is we start to take our eyes off of Jesus and we put our eyes on ourselves. And if we do that, we're going to take the eyes off of Jesus and put the eyes of the world on ourselves. And people are going to look at us and go, how could you ever be following after Christ instead of saying this? How did God choose you? Why did God extend mercy and compassion and love towards you? And all of a sudden we go, okay, well, it wasn't because of me. It's because of him. And they need to hear that because they need to know that it's not because of how good they are, but because of who God is. And we remind people to look at Jesus and not look at us, not look at how wicked we were, but look at how good God is. And I think that will help us answer this question along with David, who can receive God's grace? Who could ever receive God's grace? Verse 6, the Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Who could receive God's grace? All the oppressed. Who are the oppressed? We are the oppressed. When you don't recognize who you are, it's hard to understand how you can grow. We have to understand that there's no way we could have broken free from the sin that entangled our hearts. Romans 6 tells us we were slaves to sin. We were caught up in sin and we would, it would never let us go and we could never break free. Satan didn't want to let you go and you had no power to break free. And so we cling to Jesus knowing that he is the only one who can execute justice and righteousness for us. Verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve to, uh, or repaid us according to our iniquities. Later it says that it's, uh, God knows that we're like dust or like a flower that's here and now it's gone. God knows who we are and He knows where we are. Christ died for you on the cross knowing your sin, right? He knows where we are in this life and yet He still chose to die for us on the cross. It's unbelievable. Think about this. Verse 6. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. That's not actually righteous and just. Because think about it. It's not just for uh, forgiveness or for grace to be extended to wicked people. What's just is for them to receive discipline or wrath. So for God to be righteous and just, what we see is mercy, compassion, love, and grace. But what does God see? God sees his son on the cross. The only way for God to be righteous and justice while extending us grace, mercy, and compassion is that he took the wrath that was deserved for us and the discipline that was deserved for us and he put it upon his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So every time we see grace, mercy, and compassion and love from God, we turn our eyes to Jesus and say, thank you. Because if it weren't for Jesus pleading with his Father and advocating for us, God would still see us with wrath and discipline in order for our lives because it was what we deserve and what we should get for eternity. And yet God doesn't give it to us. Why? Because he put it all upon his shoulders back, uh, Jesus Christ's back. It's all because Christ took it, not because we did. It's why he's our advocate. It's why he's atoned for us. It's why he has forgiven us because he took all the wrath and the discipline that we would deserve and he took it upon his shoulders. You know, when people look at the Old Testament, they say the Old Testament's like legalistic and work-based and 
uh, and the Israelites had to do these things to be saved. Man, it's, here's what you're doing. This is, this is not the right way to view the Old Testament. What you're doing is you're looking at the Old Testament through the lens of, its, uh, of, of, of bad interpreters. You're looking at the Old Testament through the lens of Pharisees and Sadducees. That's what they taught. That's not what the Old Testament taught. Look at what David says. He's pleading with the Lord in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 103, he's thanking the Lord for saving him despite his wickedness. That God came to him and gave him compassion, love, grace, and mercy. Not because of David, but because of God's covenant faithful love to David. And God does not extend grace, mercy, and compassion to David without knowing that Christ is coming, who is the true and perfect sacrifice that we all needed, including David. And so all of the Old Testament, including this passage, points to Christ. And so we too in our lives must point to Christ because there's nothing we can do and everything with what Christ has done. Let's tell the world that it's not who we are or what we were, but instead it's who Christ is and what he did. Now it's important to notice in Psalm 34 and in uh, sorry Psalm 103 and in Exodus 34 that that latter portion of 34 is kind of removed in 103, but he kind of brings it up later because Moses and the stiff-necked people, as he would call them, who worshipped the golden calf, were forgiven, but and they were extended grace and mercy. But then God called them to follow after Him by obeying the Ten Commandments. Like it's golden calf. The Lord is compassionate, gracious, and merciful because of his covenant faithful love. And then Ten Commandments. Because it's what's good for them and brings glory to God. So he's like, hey, I'm going to save you and deliver you. Now live this way because it's what's good for you and it will bring glory to God. So what now? What do we do with our lives? We do two things it tells us in Psalm 103. Obedience and praise. Worship God. In verse 17 and 18, it says, But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him, and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. Yes, God extends us mercy, grace, and compassion, but then he calls us to a better life, to a life of following after him, to a life of obedience towards him, because that is a good, uh, it's good for us, and it brings glory to him. It's the exact same thing we see in the New Testament. It's because of our salvation that we are obedient to Christ. And we see it throughout the, New Te- uh, throughout the Old Testament. And so I hope that we will join with saints of old like Moses and David to worship God, to praise God because of what he's done. Just like in verses 20 through 22 where it says, Bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. Now we have to be careful here. We have to be careful because the further we move from recognizing sin and repenting from sin towards retraining actions, the the further we go from repenting towards pursuing after Christ and doing what he's called us to do, the easier it is to forget the grace of God in our lives. I'm not saying that's how it should be. I'm just saying that's what often happens. The further we move from our sin towards the holiness that the Spirit's working in us, the easier it is to forget what Christ did on the cross. Because we can do one of two things. We can either say, thank you, God, for changing my life, 
Or we can say, thank you, God, that I'm not like these sinners. And that's exactly where we began this series. What would Jesus do? We began this series with saints think, uh, thinking that they were better than other sinners. But if you buy a house and it doesn't, it doesn't make you a better builder. And if you go to a Ravens game, it doesn't make you a better football player. Some people think they do. You hear people telling like, coaches how to coach, and you hear them telling football players how to play, right? Now, now get this, y'all. Get this. If you overcome sin, it doesn't make you a better person. Y'all with me? If you overcome sin, it doesn't, just, it doesn't make you a better person. Just like buying a house doesn't make you a better builder. If you overcome sin, it doesn't make you a better person. So as soon as you believe that lie, you start to rob God of his glory and his grace and his compassion for you in your life because you think that you've done something, yet God found you just like he found David and Aaron. Literally, Moses walks up upon Aaron worshiping this golden calf. God found them there and extended grace, mercy, and compassion to them in the midst of their rebellion in the midst of them being disheveled, in the midst of them walking away from the God, in the midst of them choosing other gods, that's where God found them. So it's by his wounds that we are healed. It's by his grace that we are called sons and daughters. And it's by his love that we are continually renewed in this grace, mercy, and compassion. It's by his spirit that we will one day be raised from the dead. So do not leave God's grace thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Instead, see yourself as redeemed by a gracious and loving God who has been faithful to you despite your unfaithfulness to him. And anytime we find ourselves on a mountain instead of a valley, we give God glory. And when we find ourselves in a valley instead of a mountain, we cling, out to, cling on to God and we worship God and we desire God and we need God in the valleys. But when we get on those mountaintops and we feel like everything is good, it's so easy to go, okay, God, I'm good. I've got everything together. My whole life feels like it's all good. Look, when you're in a valley, if you're living like you're on a mountain, you're just going to continue to run into pits, despair, uh, uh, destruction in your own life, uh, um, uh, anxiety, depression. We start to think like, okay, I'm going to act like I did on the mountain. I'm going to think, okay, I'm in a valley and I got it together. I'm good. I've got this. I can fight through this. I'm strong enough. And all of a sudden you're in a valley going, okay, maybe I'm not. This is feeling like too much. This is overwhelming. And you've got to remind yourself because we can't act like we did on the mountain when we're in the midst of a valley. But we also can't act like we're in, when we're on a mountain, like we're not still in the valley clinging to God going, it's because of you that I'm here. It's because of you that I've overcome this sin. It's because of you that I've even been freed from this sin. It's because of you, God, that I have a future in the midst of my life. It's because of you that I can love people. It's because of Christ that you can do anything in your life. And so don't get to a point in your life where you feel like, okay, I'm here, I'm good. Instead, like David, we go, God, you met me in the midst of my despair and wickedness, and that's where you saved me. And so, God, it's all for you and for your glory that I will worship you. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. My soul, bless the Lord. And so here's our question. If God redeemed you, then will you be a part of him redeeming others? Sinners who are far from God, just like you and me. Like David, remembering God's faithfulness to the Israelites with Moses. Like Jesus' generation, seeing the faithfulness of God to David, seeing the faithfulness of God to Moses, seeing the faithfulness of God to the Israelites. 
we are able to see God continually be faithful throughout generations upon generations. And if God was faithful to them and redeemed them, who is next? Who's going to be the next person to be redeemed by God? You know, next week we're going to take up a difficult question. It's, it's about reconciliation, and it's how we draw the world to God. Um, the, this, is pro, this is, according to Scripture, it looks like this is the, uh, the biggest issue with the priests, their biggest failures. They were supposed to preach the gospel to the nations, but yet instead they cling to it for themselves, and they sort of become prideful, and they don't preach the gospel to the nations. Isn't it ironic that that's exactly the issue they have with Christ, that he preaches the gospel to the nations? to the sinners, to all people like you and I. And so what we've got to wrestle with next week is what does it look like to balance this? We've been called to be priests who preach the gospel to the nations. We've been called to be holy, as we saw throughout the past few weeks in this series. We've been called to overcome sin. We're called to call other people to overcome sin. And we're in the midst of this journey of overcoming sin. What does it look like to go to people and meet them where they are like God does, meet them where they are and offer grace, mercy, and compassion to them? reconciling them back to Christ, reconciling them back to God. And y'all, there's like, there's tension here. Somebody in this room may feel like, man, I, I you know, I feel like God uh, uh, works with those who repent. God works with those who are willing to, like the man on the cross, say, I'm a thief and uh, I recognize my sin and Jesus extends him grace. Some of you in here might go, okay, but I feel like I'm called to preach to the people like Paul who is literally walking towards sin, coming from sin and overseeing death. He's headed towards sin to oversee death, to kill Christians. And then all of a sudden, that's where Christ, and he would say it like this, Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That's where Christ found him with compassion, as David says in Psalm 103. That's where God met Paul. And so some of you in here are like, I don't know, am I supposed to go to those who, pre, who are far from Christ, who've never repented? Or am I only supposed to go for those who are in, in the church who have repented? Because David, he was the people of God. He's the chosen one. The Israelites were the people of God, the chosen ones. Uh, who are we supposed to go to? Who are we supposed to preach this to? Well, here's the truth of it. Let the redeemed preach. I don't know who's God, who God's going to work through you to reach. Maybe it's Paul, unrepentant. Maybe it's the man on the cross who's repentant. Maybe it's Peter who struggles throughout his discipleship process coming to the conclusion of telling Jesus that he was wrong and denying him. I don't know who God's going to use you to redeem through his power and through his grace. But here's what I do know. Redeemed people preach redemption. Go preach the gospel. Like David preaching in Psalm 103 to tell people about his life and how God redeemed him. Like Moses, preaching about the Lord's faithfulness and covenant faithfulness to them for grace, mercy, and compassion. Like Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verse 50, because grace, mercy, and compassion is from generation to generation. So in this generation and in this culture, those who are far from Christ in the wickedness of their ways, so far from Christ, who you think God could never redeem, that's who God's going to redeem. Because just like David, just like the Israelites, just like the people in, all throughout the Gospels that we studied in this series, Christ is redeeming. Christ is surprising us with who he redeems. Because Christ came for the sick and not the healthy. And so as the band comes, I want to remind you of a truth that we've, we've been speaking over us from Scripture 
throughout the beginning of this series till now. God is real. His word is true. We are his people. We are sinners. And Jesus rescues sinners. So when we ask the question, what would Jesus do? The answer is, he would rescue sinners. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to continue to ask, ask this question. Based on what Jesus did, what do I do? And if the answer to what Jesus did was rescue sinners, the answer to what we ought to do is the same. We have to rescue sinners through the power of the Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ and for nothing that we can do, but all for what God can do in their life. Rescue sinners. So my gospel response to you this morning is this. Let the redeemed preach. Overcome sin, which we talked about for the past two months. It should always lead to an obedient follower of Christ. When Christ overcomes sin in your life, let that follow into you following after Christ. And third, give thanks often. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Daily, remind yourself of the goodness of God in your life. That it's because of Him that you are where you are. And if you're in here today and you feel like you're still struggling with sin, still struggling with temptation, maybe you're in here today and you've never repented. Maybe you know of a sin in your life and you have never turned away from it and started to pursue after Christ. Maybe you feel like David in, in Psalm 51. And you feel like you're so wicked and so, so uh, away from God, there's no way he could ever save you. Remember, compassion. Compassion is given where God meets you. So as he finds you, he's going to give you grace, mercy, and compassion where you are. Not in perfection, but where you are. So this morning, I hope that there are people who can proclaim with me. I was dust. I was far from God. I was a sinner. And I was a rebel. And I turned from God. And I would chosen the ways of the world. And my heart loved the things of the world. And that's where God found me. And I hope he will find you there too. Let's pray. God, your word is true. We believe that you will save us despite our failures and despite our sins. God, we believe that in the valleys and on the mountains, it's because of you that we can even get through. And so God, I pray that you would continue to give our people strength to overcome sin, strength to follow after you. I pray that, God, as we move closer towards you, we never forget what you have done in our lives. As we overcome sin, that we never forget that you forgave us of that sin. As we find victories, we won't forget you are the victor. And Jesus, as our advocate, we thank you. Thank you for pleading with the Father to forgive us despite our failures, for taking our sin upon your shoulders on the cross so that justice and righteousness might be poured out upon us and be authentic and real so that we might be saved and delivered from where we should have been, deserving of punishment and deserving of wrath and deserving of discipline. And yet you, yet you took it all upon you.
And so, God, we give you glory. We thank you and we bless you, Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.
church. Remember, you were sent to miss the dark to light up. Pray you have a great week. Go light up the darkness. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.